2: It's Friday, August 19th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis.
3: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
2: You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
3: Today's episode is brought to you by Magoosh. Online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. It can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for standardized tests. Magoosh offers a better solution. Affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. Magoosh's complete test prep is... Starts at under $100, and they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. Go to magoosh.com right now. That's M A G O O S H.com and get 20% off with code MINES at checkout. When measles broke out at California's Disneyland in 2015, sickening 147 people across seven states, the public outrage against the parents who opted out of vaccines was rampant and merciless. Parents who refuse vaccines are often accused of neglecting their children and putting others' lives at risk. Anti-vaxxers are often perceived as undereducated, misinformed, and even dangerous. NYU press author Jennifer Reich's Calling the Shots investigates these parents who are actually most likely to be white, college-educated, and with an above-average family income. This book explores the many parents who don't vaccinate, who can't simply be labeled as alternative thinkers wanting to do things, quote-unquote, the natural way. The book is out now and you can use discount code VAX to save 30% on your order at nyupress.org. My favorite Inquiring Minds episode of the last year has to be the episode that you did with Mara Hart on sex in the sea. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, and I wanted to, uh, you know, take my turn at the helm of exploring wild sex as it were. And uh, so I... Decided if you took C, I might as well take the other third of land mass or of mass on planet Earth and explore sex in the animal kingdom. So, this week we have on a special guest, Karen Bondar. She is a biologist, writer, presenter, and just a great old science geek. You can see her on Discovery Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science and Stephen Hawking's Brave New World. Her independent web series Wild Sex was a wildly popular peek into the animal kingdom, which she has now turned into a book on the science behind mating. We had a ranging conversation on all things animal mating, from the courtship to the copulation to the aftermath. She also has a forthcoming series called World's Oddest Animal Couples, which is a offbeat take on some of the themes you see in the book.
2: Yeah, the only thing that bums me out about this interview is that I wasn't the one that got to talk to her because I've met Karen and she's a wonderful person. And of course, her work is really excellent. Uh, She proves that you can make science not only fun, but also sexy uh, and in no way demeaning to women, which is totally awesome.
3: Well, I might've demeaned men with our conversation on what we don't know about the female orgasm, but we'll get to that in our interview. So let's take a short break. We'll be back with my interview with Karen Bondar. <laughs> if you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns, a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. The most recent episode focuses on former Marine Jake Wood, founder and CEO of Team Rubicon, which gives veterans a renewed sense of purpose by organizing them for disaster relief. Here's a sample of what you'll hear.
2: You know, over the course of twenty days, you know, what became known as Team Rubicon helped thousands of people. You know, we just kinda laughed about the irony of using counterinsurgency tactics to deliver humanitarian aid, most of it could be repurposed to help people.
3: Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. And this episode is brought to you by NYU Press. Sociologist Jennifer Reich is the mother of three children and spent over a decade studying parents who decide not to vaccinate their children and its controversial impacts on public health. Her book, Calling the Shots, brings together the perspectives of these parents as well as pediatricians and policymakers to understand the points of disagreement on what is best for children, communities, and public health. Calling the Shots is now available from NYU Press. Use the promo code VAX for 30% off your order on nyupress.org. You can also follow NYU Press on Twitter and Facebook. Karen Bondar, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
3: All right, let's dig into some wild sex. We have <laughs> to first talk about attraction because when it comes to mating, you, you don't just hook up. It takes a little bit of work. And that means we have to talk about pheromones first and foremost.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's funny because humans, I love to talk about how humans sometimes get it right, get it wrong, get it different than a lot of other animals. And I don't think a lot of us humans really think about what it means for other animals to actually find someone Appropriate. Um, You know, we have all these very specific ways of doing that. You know, we write in profiles for our online dating. We have friends hook us up. We meet people potentially at um, different functions that are of interest to us. Well, how do animals do it? And as you said, pheromones are of key importance, and these are the chemical smells or uh, c- clues, I guess you could say, that animals um, exude to either retract, repel, uh, compete with uh, various members of the same or opposite sex in order to get that ever so important reproductive process going.
3: And there 's so many different forms of pheromones out there, and it seemed like in your book there 's so the animals use them in really different ways. Can you give us an example of how it 's used because I think most people probably associate pheromones. Almost with like those snake oil, you know, late night TV products that advertise <laughs> pheromones uh, for right. human use. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here.
1: Well, and here's just a little a little tidbit, guys. You know, uh, pheromones from a different species might not be the right ones for, for us. Just going to throw that out there. But yeah, there's so many examples with the pheromones that I love. I mean, you have to think about, you know, a lot of times animals live maybe in the dark or maybe very deep underwater or in environments that aren't conducive to seeing. A lot of animals aren't visually oriented as as we are. So it's kind of hard to put ourselves into um, that kind of scenario. But if you can imagine not really being able to see um, who you're potentially going to date, you really have to rely on how uh, they smell and and potentially how you smell as well. Um, One of the examples that I love are these uh, potpourri, these perfumes that um, some species of male flying insects. And especially bees um, create. The males will actually make their own signature scent if you will by gathering scents from various different kinds of flowers and of course males that are uh, more biologically fit or or better able to create uh, a very enticing concoction are going to get more action from the ladies well what's a what's a sore loser going to do sometimes we see that uh, less able males actually kill, uh, hunt down and kill the males that have these uh, gorgeous scent patches on their legs and they rip those legs off and carry them around themselves to be able to smell just as good uh, as, as Mr. Cool there before he got killed and, uh, and dismembered. So, you know, that's something that we don't necessarily think about. Not only do animals of, of various phyla have to create an enticing scent for themselves, they may not be able to do that. They, of course, also competing with other members to do the same thing.
3: Well, ripping legs off seems a bit extreme. It's certainly more extreme than my wife like keeping a shirt around when I'm traveling. One of my (laughs) shirts around to remind her of me. One of the stories that really stuck out to me and it's this really little tidbit is around the fact that selection is a very big choice in the animal kingdom. And we have this notion that females are often choosy, but males are pretty much like anytime, anywhere, let's do it. But you kind of dispel that notion in a lot of ways. And one of my favorite things is a story about these orangutans that sort of test males because they have to be really careful because there are certain males that are prone to violence. And they will steal a little food from the males just to see if they're going to be the appropriate mate.
1: Yeah, I love this example because it tunes into a couple of things that that you've alluded to in your question. And first and foremost is something that's gaining a lot more momentum in the research community, and that is the notion of animal personality. Now, for decades and decades, biologists and, and the general public, of course, has been just looking at animals like, oh, there's a group of horses, there's a group of orangutans, and they must behave in such and such a way and so on and so forth. But it's not like that. Each and every individual is apt to have their own personality, much in the same way that humans do. And so there are going to be some orangutan males, um, and, and and any other mammal for that matter, males that are the nice guys, the, the jerks, the jocks, the sensitive ones, the cranky ones, you know, there's all sorts of things. But the story with orangutans is a little more predictable in that you will get um, some alpha males that are certainly a lot more aggressive than others. So females have actually uh, created this strategy to be able to figure out who they want to mate with. They don't want to necessarily be with someone who's overly aggressive because he could be aggressive towards them, of course, and male orangutans often are, and also towards their children. And so females will go around And sneak a little bit of his food and 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 the key part of this is that the females will sneak food that is easy for them to get Um, something like sneaking a few french fries off your boyfriend's plate Um, something that's cheap easy to get not all that interesting I'm just testing to see what you're gonna do if I grab a few and interestingly enough a lot of the males will either um, condone this behavior some however will steal them back some however will have an outright fit and go Go and smash out on somebody else, so it actually really is an effective way for females to to test the potential temperament of a mate.
3: I want to track back to something you said that the idea of personalities in animals is a a new concept in studying animals. Why is that because we've you know if you talk to any sort of dog lover, they'll tell you about the personality that their dog specifically has. But this idea of personality being pervasive throughout the animal kingdom is new?
1: You know, and and it shouldn't be. It's one of those things where you're kind of like, why is this new? But, you know, I recall back to when I was in the seventh grade and um, I was taught that humans are different from every other animal out there because humans use tools. Um, and you know that was oh gosh I don't want to date myself too much but that wasn't too long ago and um, so you know science takes these these great big strides sometimes and takes really small strides and so um you know it wasn't too long ago that we didn't think anybody even used tools so we have come a long way to that end when you think about of course all of the animals from diverse phyla that of course use tools and now we're saying okay these guys actually have emotions these guys actually have emotions and therefore this must mean that they have different personalities and this one is reacting differently in this situation than this other one is and what can that tell us about their general ecology this of course makes uh, for extremely difficult study it's certainly not easy to do personality studies on any animal that we can't directly communicate with and say hey um you know mr antelope how are you feeling today are you cranky are you depressed you know it's really difficult for us to make those kinds of discernations yeah
3: Let's get into the sex, because if you're lucky enough to be successful to attract a mate, well, you've you've achieved a big victory in the animal kingdom.
1: Big victory.
3: But there are still a lot of mysteries once you get into the act of sex. And uh, this sounds like a bad joke, but one of the biggest mysteries still out there is the orgasm itself particularly the female orgasm, which you spend a lot of time talking about. And it is current news again because a recent study came out on this topic.
1: Yeah, and I I think that what came out in the recent paper, which was the notion that perhaps in female humans, egg release might be associated with orgasm. This actually does go along with quite a bit of the research that's been shown in um, female great apes and most specifically chimps, where female chimps are more likely to achieve orgasm with preferred partners and this goes back to the notion that male and female orgasms are actually completely different male orgasms are pretty darn predictable they're tactile you can elicit them based on a very predictable set of physical sensations that a male feels Female orgasms, on the other hand, are largely emotional and based first and foremost in the brain. Um, so, you know, very different kinds of orgasm, and this is backed up by uh, research from the animal kingdom. And this notion of the current paper that perhaps ovulation um, might be triggered by having an orgasm is really interesting because, again, it tells you that if we're with a preferred partner, we do have that orgasm, we are biologically more likely to increase our fitness because we may be more likely to have an offspring with that particular partner.
3: Now that's pointing to a particular idea in the field, but uh, let's be frank, there still seems to be a lot of mystery around the female orgasm from an evolutionary perspective, right?
1: Yeah. So what uh, the main school of thought uh, with respect to the female orgasm, and let me just say, first, first of all, that I have no objection to it, and I'm very glad that it exists. But um, yeah, why do we do this? I mean, male orgasm in mammals especially makes sense. There's uh, this release of sperm that has to happen in order for um, males to, to get their sperm out. I don't know why does such a release have to happen in females and in very very few species if any at all has it actually ever been proven that uh, orgasm is associated with release of eggs Um, that's a very new idea but basically the female clitoris is essentially a vestigial penis what does that mean well think about something like our appendix or or even more importantly our nipples why do males have nipples (laughs) if we're going to go along with that argument well they have them because they are so darn important for females Uh, of course we need these uh, glands to to feed our, our children when they're first born. They're very important for a, for a feeding purpose. And so they are evolutionarily sustained in males because they are very important in females. The same thing can be said for the penis and the clitoris, which, as I said, is a vestigial penis. Um, it is such an important structure in males. Therefore, it it comes along for the evolutionary ride, if you will, in females.
3: I can't not talk about this section without talking about the phrase that really brought you to my attention years ago, which is detachable penis. <laughs>
1: I know. It's this absolutely horrible notion. And whenever I give a talk and I talk about detachable penises, all the males in the audience kind of give me this this terrible look like, what? Does it come back? And in most cases, no, it doesn't. Um, the sort of quintessential uh, example that we talk about here is, is a little creature called the paper nautilus which is closely related to squid and octopus and and it goes uh by these pheromonal cues that we were talking about early in our conversation uh and when a male senses that there is a a, a receptive female around the penis will actually detach from the male find the female and attach itself onto her um it does not come back but yes a new one will grow back (laughs) so males everywhere need not be too upset but it is a phenomenal phenomenal thing and something that you know, in the mammals, it's almost unthinkable, of course, something that's so very important to not only sexual function, but also to ego and various other social aspects as well.
3: As I went through so many of your examples of the act of copulation between various animals, the word that really felt farther and farther away was normal, with that there was a such a thing as normal sex. And one of the things that really stuck out is that we even have interspecies sex that exists. And I was hoping you could tell us a few examples of what that looks like and why that would ever happen.
1: Yeah, there are some very interesting examples of sex between species in the animal kingdom. Now, it actually happens quite frequently in the invertebrate world. And there's a lot of different hypotheses for for its occurrence, including the fact that in in several cases with small insects that are very similar looking to each other that um, and closely related, that certain individuals simply can't tell the difference. Oh, um, really?
3: They just so sort they're of like, eh. This is what it it looks kind of close.
1: (laughs) Maybe. How about you? Um, Yeah. And we actually even see this across species or between species in a homosexual fashion as well. So we have heterosexual um, interspecies sex, homosexual interspecies sex. But we also see these interesting examples. And I know that um, these make a lot of news headlines when they come out of things like these um, great big elephant seals or fur seals that are essentially raping penguins um, up on ice caps. Perhaps. And this is still kind of anybody's guess. Why is this happening? What is going on in the mind of this very intelligent mammal um, as it is? trying to have sex with this other animal that is clearly not its species well guess what we are not the only animal to utilize sex toys to utilize different kinds uh, of stimulation that don't look as you said quote unquote normal and um this falls along the lines of both inter sex and and also things like um, LGBTQ, which in, for ages humans have, have sort of used the idea that it's unnatural for two members of the same sex within a species to have sex together. Well, let me tell you, if you could show me a species on this planet that doesn't have some kind of same-sex sexual interaction, I will be shocked because I haven't found one yet. Um, so there's just what we call normal just gets flipped on its head in this book. And, and that makes me Really happy, actually.
3: Is there any sense of pleasure that these animals are taking? You know, part in uh, during sex. Do, it seemed like a question that you pose that doesn't really have an answer at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a clear-cut answer, and that goes back to something that you brought up quite early in our conversation and that is this notion of gamete value Uh, females have eggs that are very very expensive and so we want to be quite choosy generally speaking about who we share them with males on the other hand have a lot of sperm and it's very cheap and easy to make so in a lot of cases uh, in the animal kingdom females don't want to have any more sex for one reason or another. They've had enough partners. They can store sperm. Um, the list goes on about why a female is done in terms of getting. Late, so to speak. <laughs> it's kind of not a, a very ladylike way to put it, but anyway, she's finished. However, this is bad news for any male who, who still wants to uh, get a chance to put his sperm into her sperm bank, so to speak. And this really sets the scene for a lot of violent and coercive um, sexual practices. We see all sorts of things um, from holding a partner down with specialized structures to actually stabbing or wounding a partner to using chemical warfare against a partner to get them to subdue or submit to you. Um, There are all kinds of ways. Chemical
3: warfare. Like, what's the example of that?
1: Oh, this is a good one. This is in uh, a species, several species, actually, uh, of nudibranchs, which are my favorite animal on the planet, uh, sea slugs, essentially. And these animals are hermaphrodites, uh, meaning that they're both male and female at the same time, but they don't uh, fertilize themselves. So they still do need to find partners to cross with. Now, because hermaphrodites. And this, this everybody take a second and just open up your mind because this this takes a second to wrap your head around. When you are both male and female at the same time, you're kind of at war with yourself as well as being at war with any potential partner that comes along. Now, you want to be the male in as many sexual uh, partnerships as you can because it's As I said, it's cheaper and easier to be the male. If your eggs get fertilized, you're going to be doing a lot more work than if you just shoot your sperm out there as much as you can. So, a lot of uh, nudibranch species, and one in particular in the uh, tropics of the South Pacific, has been found to uh, stab its razor sharp penis with a great deal of accuracy directly onto the cerebral ganglion of the receiving partner. So, yes, they're stabbing their partner. Directly onto their brain with their penis. Now, scientists were really baffled about this for quite a while because A, why would you stab your partner in the brain? And B, why would you always do it right in that spot? Well, it turns out that they're not just ejaculating sperm into their partner, they're actually uh, giving them a suite of chemicals, neurochemicals, that are causing uh, changes in their brain such that that partner then. Uh, takes on more of the female role and is less apt to uh, hunt down other partners and therefore take care of the fertilized eggs that this partner has just uh, fertilized for them. So I mean, wow, talk about crazy complexity. And that really does give new meaning to the whole, honey, I have a headache term. Uh, (laughs) Quite literally, I have a headache because you just stabbed your penis into my brain.
3: (laughs) That's such a crazy story. And I'm assuming the partner is trying to do the same uh, on the other side, too. Yeah,
1: that's right. And we have other um, animals like flatworms that actually engage in something called penis fencing. I mean, these things are violent. It sounds quite funny on on our end to say it, but I mean, they're literally trying to, to wound each other. And the first two to to become wounded in those fights generally does become the female.
3: Okay, well, I think we have to move on from sex because this is becoming much more... <laughs> violent than I thought. Well, let's talk about the aftermath because you and I are both parents. We both know the aftermath of quote unquote successful sex uh-huh. pretty well. And we put a lot of energy and time into making this child an offspring. Uh but you bring up examples of a lot of animals that do surprising things once they have uh, an offspring, including some that give them away after all that work. I know. It
1: just seems almost unthinkable once you've kind of gone through this whole book, looking at all the crazy ways it is to try to meet someone, all the crazy ways you have to go through actually having sex with them. But yes, there are a lot of species and especially a, a, a set of bird species uh, that are called nest parasites that simply deposit their eggs into the nests uh, of other birds of completely different species. Um, and it's It's a really strange strategy, and it's one that's received a lot of um, attention in biological research. When you see these tiny little birds feeding chicks that are about 10 to 15 times the size uh, of of themselves, Um, but they are basically programmed to feed the the chicks that come out of the eggs in their nests. and So these nest parasites are able to actually realize a good amount of biological fitness or the passing on of their genes by by utilizing or or hijacking, essentially, the, the parenting qualities of other species.
3: It's so natural for us to draw conclusions about human sexuality based off of how it's done in the animal world. Is that actually a fair thing for us to think about?
1: I think that it is in the sense that... It's nice to be humbled. It's nice to go. What are we thinking? Um, at least for me, it is. I like to. I like to really relish the fact that when all is said and done, we are a great ape, just like all the other great apes. We are part of uh, the mammalian class, just like all the other mammals. Um, and and sometimes, especially when it comes to sex, what we're calling right. Isn't right at all necessarily? Um, when you think about the notion of sexual monogamy, which quite frankly does not exist in the mammals outside of humans, um, well, why is it that we're considering that to be the right or normal way to do it? And let me put the caveat out there that I am sexually monogamous and I don't want my male partner being with anybody else. But at the same time, because we have this internal fertilization, and I'm out of reproductive commission for an entire nine months once I get pregnant, what on earth is he doing sticking around? when you think about biological fitness? He should be out there fertilizing as many ladies as he quite possibly can. And maybe the whole Ashley Madison hack or, or the, the level of, of cheating and, and um, you know other kinds of, of breakdowns of the monogamous cycle that we see in our species is evidence that we are sort of imposing something that, that might be biologically un, unnatural for us.
3: There's a quote at the end of your book that was really striking to me, and that's sex is part of almost all decisions made by animals, and it contributes to virtually every facet of social organization and community formation. And I spent some time thinking about that quote, trying to dispel that notion, and I couldn't.
1: (laughs) I know. And I love that because you know, uh, sometimes I, I feel like people are like, oh, sex biologist, isn't that funny? You get to talk about strange penises and whatever. And sure I do. And they're funny and interesting and people love that. I love that. But when you really break it down and you think about everything that contributes to whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's um, aspects of family function or community function, sex is so important. And, and, and not just the act of copulation, but everything else that goes into it. The selection of a partner, um, the rearing of offspring, how you choose to make decisions based on um, how that offspring will then hopefully go on to have offspring of their own. Everything is connected. And I think it's really worth reminding ourselves um, that survive and reproduce are the two major facets of any animal's life. And we are not to be excluded from that.
3: Well, on that incredibly touching note that sex (laughs) is complicated It certainly isn't easy, and it's well worth more study. I think we should call it an episode. Karen Bondar, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds.
1: Oh, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Kishore.
2: Well, I have to say, I'm still a little sad that I wasn't the one that got to do this interview, but it's so interesting, and she just does such a great job of making what you know, for a lot of people, it can be kind of clinical and sterile science, not only accessible, but titillating.
3: Yeah, no question. And quite frankly, I'm a brown person and I was blushing more than a couple <laughs> times as I read through the book. So which is a challenge. Uh, I have to say, though, I think the real takeaway is that we have this kind of normalized view of what sex and mating looks like in the animal kingdom. And it is couldn't be farther from the truth when we got to talking about how there's mating across species sometimes because they couldn't tell the difference and sometimes you know for reasons that we don't understand it just shows you how insane that world is and how much of a driver uh, that reproductive effect is across every species
2: and yet, it also talks a little bit about our own taboos. You know, why should we be so surprised about sexual behavior, you know, having all of these different quirks when so many other aspects of behavior we just accept as, oh, yeah, you know, of course the grasshopper jumps, you know, much larger than it would be like us jumping over a skyscraper. Like that doesn't, you know, that seems normal, but, you know, put the grasshopper in a sexual situation and all of a sudden we're sort of like, whoa, that's weird.
3: Yeah, I think the upending of norms is one of, Uh, the biggest takeaways. And then I I also think the idea that there is such a thing as normal is also something that I left with like, oh, there's just no such thing anymore. There's no normalization outside that we have a desire to do this.
2: Absolutely. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, videos of your favorite animals mating. Please keep it somewhat clean or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org.
3: Thanks to Magoosh for sponsoring today's episode. Magoosh's online test prep is the easiest way to prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, or Praxis. Magoosh offers top quality lesson videos and practice questions at an affordable price. Go to Magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now to get 20% off with code MINDS at checkout. And this episode is brought to you by NYU Press. Sociologist Jennifer Reich is the mother of three children and spent over a decade studying parents who decide not to vaccinate their children and its controversial impacts on public health. Her book, Calling the Shots, brings together the perspectives of these parents as well as pediatricians and policymakers to understand the points of disagreement on what is best for children, communities, and public health. Calling the Shots is now available from NYU Press. Use the promo code VAX for 30% off your order on nyupress.org. You can also follow NYU Press on Twitter and Facebook. And this episode is sponsored by Crazy Good Turns. Crazy Good Turns is a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. This week, learn about former Marine Jake Wood, founder and CEO of Team Rubicon, which gives veterans a renewed sense of purpose by organizing them for disaster relief. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Inquiring Minds is produced by our wild man, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Jian
2: And we're your hosts. I'm Andrey Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indrevis.
3: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.